0: He's controversial, 20,
1: 30, 40, 50 years from now,
0: he's outspoken,
1: you will tell your kids and your grandkids and your great-great-grandkids,
0: and he tells it like it
1: is, that you watched a great athlete named The Franchise, and he was the greatest world's Heavyweight Champion of all time. He is The
0: Franchise
1: Shane Douglas,
0: and you are listening to The Triple Threat Podcast. Prepare to get your ass franchised. This is the best of the Triple Threat Podcast. If you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and as always, you hear me on the two-man power trip of wrestling, but you also hear me on the Triple Threat Podcast featuring myself, my co-host from the two-man power trip, the one and only John Paz, and of course, our third Mike. The greatest co-host we could possibly have on the Triple Threat Podcast, the franchise Shane Douglas, the one and only franchise Shane Douglas, who is getting a well-deserved week off as we celebrate the wonderful holiday season and get ready for a brand new year, 2018 on the horizon. So what we figured we'd do here is we'd take a look back at the past 27 weeks and pull some of the best clips that we've had so far Maybe some of the best rants, you could say, or some of the best stories that the franchise has shared on the show. But I'll tell you what, putting this together was a lot of fun and splicing in some clips to help build up the quotes and the uh, the stories you're about to hear Uh, is a lot of fun i love doing this so please sit back and relax and enjoy a very special best of episode of the triple threat podcast and get ready because we're going to open up 2018 with a bang as we will release a new episode on january 2nd 2018 a brand new triple threat podcast and this is giving Shane a little bit of time off so I can't even imagine what is going to be going on in the world and the mind of the franchise so get ready for that and strap in for a little best of and thank you so much for joining us here every single week and please we welcome you to join us and we are looking forward to a phenomenal and gigantic 2018 for the triple threat podcast so that's enough out of me let's get this show on the road so if you don't mind keep the noise down as i take this opportunity to throw it on over to a simply ravishing best of the triple threat podcast now hit the music
2: Paul walked in with him, you know, this tall guy, you know, Rick was about 6'3", 6'4", pretty tall guy, Uh, but he had a a big motorcycle helmet on with the full face blackened out and a great big overcoat, and he just walked in with his hands in his pocket with Paul and walked to the back, and I thought, that's sort of strange, you know, like, there's nobody else in the building but us, and... uh, you know, of course at that point I knew Rick very well from my WWF stint in 1990 and, and and earlier times in the business so uh i i didn't i wasn't aware until the reveal uh on that show uh so the the reaction you see from me is a, is a legitimate reaction both in character and as Troy Martin uh because i did not know Rick good there um did not know until the moment of the reveal, so it allowed for a much more organic and believable reaction from me, both in character and out of character. Uh, but you know, Rick was great to work with. But I will say this: there were signs that there was something, just a scant off of Rick. You know, Rick was always very easy to work with, albeit the most one of the most uptight person people I'd ever worked with in the ring before. Uh, but uh, there was an incident that happened at the uh, TYO, uh, the Cavalry Youth Organization uh, building in uh, Trenton, New Jersey, when he, uh, I was working with uh, Pitbull number two, uh, uh, Anthony Durante. And Anthony had never questioned anything I'd ever given him or done with him in the ring. Uh, Anthony was, if you go back and watch my matches with Pitbull too, they were probably Shane Douglas at his very best. Uh, I was very comfortable with Anthony. Uh, knew what Anthony could do, knew what he couldn't do, and so for me, those were very easy matches because I just was at ease working with him. And and he, you know, he always enjoyed working with me. Well, on, after Rick came in, uh, I started getting like a bit of obstinance from Anthony. Like he would come to me and question his spots or, uh, you know, little thing, little segues into and out of spots. And I'd never seen that before. And One night in the CYO in Trenton, he came to me and he said, you know, Shane, you know, uh, I I don't think that spot. He wanted to do a spot where I, I I, I fed him a spot where I would slide through his legs and leg trip, you know, leg diving from behind, climb up his back, have him roll me off and then pick me up and press me over his head out to, to Bam Bam and Chris at ringside and he said he came back like five or six times and kept saying I, I don't think that's I, I don't feel that spot I, I don't like that spot I don't think that spot's a good spot and I've never seen that with him before he was always very trusting of me and we always got great results so about the fourth or fifth time he came in to say that and I kept explaining to him I followed him as he walked back to his dressing room to see why it was a bunch of smaller rooms upstairs above the arena. And when I followed him back, uh, he walked in the door and closed it and I could hear him in there talking to Rick. And, you know, Rick was feeding this to him. And so I confronted Rick later and I said, you know what, you know, what are you doing interjecting in my matches? You know, you're making this harder than it has to be. And he said, you're a shitty heel. And I said, okay, why am I a shitty heel, Rick? Because I certainly valued Rick's input. And he said, "Uh, a great heel has more heat in his hometown than anywhere. Well, in Pittsburgh, of course, in ECW, Pittsburgh was like the inverse universe in ECW. So, you know, we could do all, Paul could do all kinds of angles in Pittsburgh that he couldn't do elsewhere. And I explained that to him, and he just didn't get it. He, he didn't realize that the business had changed in some respects. And that really allowed ECW, uh, you know, a, a what-if universe. I was a big comic book mark growing up. And Marvel used to have a what-if series and, you know, allowed them to explore all kinds of storyline avenues that they couldn't explore elsewhere. Same thing for ECW in Pittsburgh. You know, in Pittsburgh, I was a babyface. I didn't wrestle differently, I didn't talk differently, didn't do promos differently. Everything was the same on the character, it was just that I'm the hometown guy. And Pittsburgh being a huge wrestling town, growing up on Bruno Sammartino and Larry Zabisco and Dominic DiNucci and a litany of others, uh, there was a respect factor of being the hometown guy in Pittsburgh. So it just allowed Paul a different avenue and we, and we explored that. Rick didn't understand that and never got it. And uh, so it was just a difference of, of opinion between two heels that, that had drawn money in the business. Um, but I, I, I believe in, in my heart that that was, at that time, Rick was already experiencing some of the addiction issues that would you know, ultimately lead to his demise. And it uh, and was sad to see it. You know, because like I said, I always go along with Rick. Uh, when Steamboat and I were together, we worked with Rick Rude and, and Bader as a team. Uh, they were great to work with, if not uptight and stiff and snug. Uh, but um, I enjoyed working with Rick in those times and I, and I always valued his input. ECW, I, I think it was just Rick Rude. You know, what I was seeing in behavior in Rick Rude was more an expression of his addictions as opposed to Rick Rude. Uh, you know the established heel or the money drawing uh, heel, and uh, it always made me sort of sad because, like I, I said, I so looked up to him coming up in the business, and then later as a top heel in another company, working with him, I, there was a, sort of this obstinance between the two of us, and I think a lot of that came from the fact that they were very similar heel characters. You know, the Rick would you know to cut the fucking music, and he used to cut the music. Uh, those types of things, I think, sort of crossed over in and, and Rick's head, and I, and I can understand that. But I, I always respected Rick and looked up to Rick.
3: You know, Bubba, they say the more things change, the more they stay
1: the same. So I'm going to leave you with one final point. Oh! He just slapped him right in the face! He just set up and just cracked, Brother Ray! And here you see the Naturals both come right out here! Andy Douglas with the double-team beatdown on Brother Ray from Team 3D. What's the franchise taking a chain out of his boot? Oh, I just heard Andy Douglas uh, yelling, Jay Steven, get the table. And they're bringing one out there as Shane Douglas is leveling Brother Ray. I mean, they're getting their message across. Remember when we heard Team 3D come out and say they were going to go through all the tag teams starting at the bottom. Well, I guess the natural to let you know, if you want to go anywhere, eventually you're going to have to beat us. My God, they've got that steel chain wrapped around the neck of Brother Ray. They've got the table positioned in the corner. And now Chase Stevens and Andy Douglas just continue the beatdown. you got to wonder where Brother D-Mon is through all this. Why isn't Brother Demon out here helping Brother Ray? What a shot into the table! Wow! Team 3D's trademark, and you're right, where the hell is Brother Devon? I don't know, but we got to wonder. If, wait a minute, we go, let's go backstage. What's going on? We've got some commotion going on. That's Brother Devon backstage. That's the dirty work at home of Chase Stevens and Andy Douglas.
3: Full disclosure,
2: uh, Mark Lamonico, Bubba Ray, uh, came to me, and you know, he. I think he, the first time or the first few times they used it, they didn't realize or didn't think about it. But he did come to me and said, "Hey, you know, he apologized, uh, you know, asked how I was about them using it." And my exact words were to him, "Some of the lines of, hey, you know, do whatever you have to do to get over out there. It's fine." So, uh, you know, Bubba was very professional with it. Um, uh, absolutely no heat whatsoever. And it has a great. I've never been asked that question, and, and it surprised me because you know the three fingers was so ubiquitous to the. Uh, uh, to the triple threat, uh, but nobody's ever asked that question. So great question! What, what was his name again? Chris. Thanks from Chris for the question. But yeah, Bubba uh, was very professional with it, and you know I'm, I'm uh, you know proud of everything that Bubba and Devon have done in the business. You know they they've really proven themselves. You know outside of a what uh, I think what it, on paper would appear to be a difficult gimmick to get over, and they did a, a great job with it because they're both damn good workers.
4: It is strange though, like when you really think about it. I don't know why more people didn't think of it. Obviously, you haven't been asked that question before. Obviously, I didn't think of that question either. You know, it's like it just came from, like you know, basically just came from somebody who obviously had that thought for a long time. I don't know why more wrestling fans haven't kind of thought about it. But when you think about it, with three fingers and that, do you think that if they weren't in ECW, that you would have been annoyed by it? Was it okay because they were in ECW along with you?
2: Uh, I, I wasn't annoyed by it because Bubba was professional and came and asked. Um, you know, it's uh, you know, if somebody just started doing it. You know, I, I think we all know the franchise would have fired something back. And um, hmm. you know, it's the same thing with John Cena. Like I, I, you know, I, a few times that I met him, he's always something like a good guy, uh, very professional. Uh, but uh, you know, I I never would want to just start calling myself. You know uh, the Nature Boy or the Living Legend or whatever other gimmick you know uh, uh, gimmick name out there. Uh, you know, so I, I you know to me it's unprofessional to go out and do it that way. Uh, the way that Bubba and Devlin did it was was uh, very professional, and aside from that, they were friends of mine. You know, we were all working in ECW to get the company over, and you know, if if in any way that. I didn't think that the that the triple threat especially was boiled down to just a hand symbol, you know what I mean? It was, uh, you know, we'd had multiple incarnations of it, but of course the, the Bam Bam Chris Candido franchise Francine incarnation is the one that made the biggest impact uh, because of the time that was involved and the timing of the company to be quite honest. Uh, but yeah, it's a great question. And, and you know, uh, Bubba and Devon have done a phenomenal job to, to make their to put their stamp on the wrestling business, kudos to them.
4: Now, who does the the hand signal better, the Triple Threat or uh, Team Three D, the Deadly Boys?
2: Well, Shane does it does it much better than both, and we all know that.
4: <laughs> <laughs> now, with the, the Triple Threat, obviously doing the hand signal, obviously it kind of came from the Four Horsemen. Did you ever get any slack from any Horseman saying, "Oh, you know"? The four and the three, you know, the, the hand signals. Any, like, has anybody ever brought it up to you as far as you guys first doing that kind of the triple threat hand signal?
2: No, no. The, uh, you know, Arn and I had had a conversation one time on a flight uh, from either San Diego or Los Angeles. I think it was San Diego back to Pittsburgh, Red Eye flight, and we were both up in first class and sitting right next to each other. And uh, you know, my biggest concern was that i had always thought at that point that. That uh, Arn and and, and Rick Flair, you know, were still close, and I hadn't. This is around the time that I hadn't seen Tully in quite some time, and uh, we started talking, and you know, Arn said, "Hey, you, know, you got no heat with me, you know," and uh, uh, you know, I, I I don't want to speak too much for Arn, but you know, he had gone into some a little bit more in depth and uh, had given me a little bit more insight, which quite frankly, surprised and shocked me a bit. But no, they, they, I mean, look, the four horsemen, the, the four fingers up is so ubiquitous and so universally known. Not just the professional wrestling fans. You can go to you know, probably 50% of the population on the planet and hold up four fingers and say, oh, the four horsemen. Um, I don't think they ever felt in any way insecure about the mark that they made in wrestling. And the three, the triple threat, the, the reason I came up with that when I I devised the idea for the triple threat was if it used to take four guys to do it, three can now do what four used to do. So the number three was chosen very strategically from me just to sort of, you know, take a dig at that. Um, But there was, you know, never any conversation with anybody uh, about the the triple threat sign to the four horsemen sign. Um, I think they're all very quite secure. Like I said, with the, with the impact they've had on professional wrestling.
1: That's the one.
5: What you want me to talk about? How much I hate being bothered at the airport or hotels.
1: I would love for I would love I for mean, you to talk about that.
5: <laughs> because
1: there is there's a it right is. right there's a difference between like a, like a six year old coming up to you and being like I love you, and then right. somebody coming up to you at the airport with nine eight by tens and being like it's, I love you it's. too. <laughs> <laughs>
5: to me, I have such a big and I I grew up a wrestling fan, so I knew that I wanted to meet all my favorite wrestlers. But always in the back of my head, I never thought in my life to be like hey, they're going to fly in. Maybe I should wait <laughs> at the airport for 12 hours at a gate. Hey, they don't want any sleep. Maybe go, let me go find their, aerop- or their hotel that they're staying at and let me bother them. Like, to me, that's, that's stalking. I don't tweet out what hotel I'm at. I don't tweet out what airline I'm flying out. I do tweet you what arena I will be por- performing at. Right. So I do expect fans at the arena, and I, I'm so happy to sign at the arena. That's, that's fine because I'm telling you where I'm going to be at. If I see you in public, that's fine. But when I'm at an airport at four in the morning and I see somebody with a carry-on and then they open it
4: (laughs) with a (laughs) hundred
5: items of everyone and they're bothering everybody to get an autograph and then I see it on eBay, that's not okay to me. The comments
2: that I made were in no way, and I I spoke to several fans this past weekend, uh, they were in no way meant to be a, a jab at anybody or a lecture to anybody. Uh, it was meant to be as a 38-year veteran who has stood out there and been at the airports and had fans come up. And I, like I said before, yeah, it's a pain in the ass at times, no doubt about it. But if you wanted this game, uh, if this is the business you want to be in, then stop your whining and your crying and your snowflaking and stand up and be who you claim to be. If you want to be on that television, on this powerful juggernaut, worldwide juggernaut, and somebody goes, oh, my God, it's Sasha Banks, or it's Shane Douglas, or it's Chris Jericho, or whoever it might be, then you swallow as much BS as you have to, you be polite to them in the moment, uh, and you walk on. Now, if somebody's out in your bushes taking pictures of you taking a shower, or you know, laying next to your girl, or your boy, your husband, as it may be, uh, or your partner, I guess I must say now. Um, if it's something like that, now you got to bitch. That's, stalk- that's, that's stalking. That's real stalking. But when you're in a public place and you're a public figure, you know, like Paul Stanley said, guess, if you want to be a politician, don't bitch when you have to wear a tie. It's very, very simple. You're in a public place. Uh, you don't suppose that Michael Jordan, Ben Roethlisberger, take your major sports hero du jour. And you don't think that they find it cumbersome at times when they're out in public to have to sign an autograph or take a picture. Yeah, I'm sure that I know definitively from personal experience that they do. And yet that's what you sign on for when you come into this game. Otherwise, put a mask over your head, and you can be a wrestler. You can be a superstar wrestler, sports entertainer, wherever you call it, on the WWE, and nobody will know your face. You know what's like, ironic to this is the every little big kiss fan. I, I've read all four books from all four, Peter Chris, A Free, Gene Simmons, and Paul Stanley. And you're know all four of them say, as because back in the day when nobody knew what they looked like without the makeup. Nobody had pictures of them and every month in All the rock magazines, there was a picture of Paul Stanley, quote-unquote, but it wasn't. It was Mike Gorby from The Babies or somebody. Uh, Ironically, all four of them say that the anonymity that they had gotten from that, they despised. That they would walk down a street someplace into a music store or a record store or a uh, you know, a guitar store, and nobody would recognize them, and it would drive them crazy. So, again, not trying to lecture anybody, but just stating this as somebody's been in this business for nearing four decades. If you want to be in this game, then you don't bitch and cry and moan and moan and whine when somebody comes up and wants your autograph. Yes, it's a pain in the ass at times, time. No doubt about it. That's what you sign on for when you sign on for becoming a superstar in the WWE on all the social media, on television, in publication, and all the rest, you don't think that uh, I don't even know any major stars today, but you don't think that like all the movie stars that walk around that have uh, you know the, the the photo bombs and all the uh, media following them and the cameras hiding there every time they walk into or out of the place, you don't think they find that to be a pain in the ass? I'm sure they do. I'm certain they do. And yet, when they go to that mansion that they move into because of the money that their career has brought them, they sit back and say, hey, it ain't so bad. Uh, honestly, I, I don't see where, where where the conundrum is to anybody. It, it, and like I said before, it's a very simple formula. If you don't like if that is so intrusive to you if that is and I'm not just saying to Sasha I'm saying to Sasha to Seth Rollins to Jericho I just don't follow their show so I don't know what everybody said along the way but to anybody that is put off by somebody quote unquote bothering you at an airport or at a grocery store or at a convenience store very simple take yourself off to call Mr. McMahon and say Mr. McMahon it's been wonderful working for you I appreciate all the opportunities, but I'm going to quit. Thank you very much. I, I assure you in two or three months tops, maybe two or three days by today's standards, you'll be forgotten and nobody will bother you. Very simple.
1: Dean Douglas has some thoughts on last week's matchup involving Jerry Lawler and Shawn Michaels. Let's take you now to Dean Douglas and his critique.
3: We're here in my remote lectern, to offer a first-ever midterm report to one of my students. In this case, the heartbreak kid Shawn Michaels. And we go back to this past Monday night for an especially important match against World Wrestling Federation superstar Jerry the King Lawler. Therefore, before we begin definition altruistic meaning a preponderant concern for what others think. Shawn Michaels has shown time and time again here in the World Wrestling Federation that he's more concerned with what the fans think than what he's doing in the ring, and that is wrestling Jerry the King Lawler. If we continue forward in the match, we'll find exactly what that kind of behavior will get you here in the rings of the World Wrestling Federation again Shawn Michaels is looking for the approval of the crowd and if we continue on to see what happens when you seek such approval the King Jerry Lawler will make you pay every time (laughs) therefore heartbreak kid Shawn Michaels after very close consideration From this Monday Night Raw, I give you a grade of IU (laughs) for inanely unprepared. (laughs) Until next week, class dismissed.
6: Now, I don't want you to hate me for this, but I'm going to stand up for Dean Douglas for a minute here, okay? Just give me, give me my soapbox. I'm going to, I'm going to try to uh, drop some knowledge here on the dean or the guy who portrayed the dean or the, the, the dean who was Shane Douglas. We're going, to, we're going to try to get something across. Now, if you think about it, okay, you think about Dean, D- okay, yes, some of the segments might have been what we construe now as cheesy. At the time, you're on TV every week. Okay. Yeah, no, no, you're on TV every week. They debuted it yeah. in a very high spot. Okay, so there was a little thought behind it. Obviously, thrust into that intercontinental picture, you know, in in the ring with two of the arguably, you know, the, the the biggest guys on the roster at the time. But one thing that I find very interesting about the Dean Douglas character is how close it stayed, though, to you. When at the time we've got garbage men, we've got booger guys, we've got, you know, bushwhackers, we've got all these different things, the goon, you know, Abe Knuckleball Schwartz, you know, we have all this, <laughs> you managed to keep Douglas, and you managed to incorporate your teaching background into it, so do you look back at Dean Douglas with maybe a few little elements of, alright, on paper, could have been better, execution was obviously off, but, you yep. know, all in all, maybe Dean Douglas could have gone, obviously, a better direction.
2: No, no doubt in my mind. You know, it's I've reached a point in my career where there was a time, believe it or not, when I used to be embarrassed about the the, uh, dynamic dudes thing, and uh, then I realized, you know, we're in an industry that we're told what we're going to do, and it's our job to go out and portray that. Uh, I believe the Dean Douglas character could have worked in Spades uh, if they would allowed. uh, The one thing I remember Vince telling me vividly Mm -hmm. was that when he was in eighth grade. He had a teacher that used to talk in a monotone voice and he used to hate it. And that's why he wanted the Dean to talk in a monotone voice and uh, no inflection and no emotion. And I said, well, Vince, there's a bit of a difference here. The difference was when you were in eighth grade, you couldn't turn the channel. Today, these, these fans can. And if they know it's a 60 second segment, they'll, they'll flip around for, I'm a channel surfer. And so I knew the fans would tune away if it wasn't compelling And I had just come off the run as being a a pretty fiery talker with my promos, uh, pretty emotional. And there was one time we were up there, the the first time I'd gone to the the, uh, WWF studios on a Sunday, and they wanted me in town on a Sunday because they didn't want fans to see me coming in and out of the building as we were shooting these these first six, seven vignettes. And I had, it was there all Sunday uh, morning and afternoon going, Shoot after shoot after shoot with complete with costume changes, hair makeup changes, and you know all uh, what what verbiage they wanted. And uh, the about the fifth or sixth one in, I'd gotten so bored with it. I was bored of hearing myself talk in a monotone voice. And I said to Vince, you know, can I do that last one again? I'll use the exact same verbiage, give the exact same grade, just a little different delivery. And uh, he said, well, sure. So I did it again as the franchise pounding my fist on the podium with the laugh. Uh, it's when I started the the, the nail scratching on the board. And, uh, as I, right as I finished, literally as I finished the promo, somebody came in and said that Vince had gotten a phone call and Vince had to leave the room. So I pulled the room while he was gone. Now, mind you, the room, it wasn't two or three people. out of ECW, it was two or three makeup girls and hair girls, uh, two or three sound techs, a uh, couple cameramen, Michael Hayes was in there, Stan uh, Lane was in there, Jim Ross was in there. Uh, there were probably, I don't know, 12, 15 people in the room, and I went around the room and I asked each of them, which do you think was better, which delivery? The first person I asked was Michael Hayes, because I've always respected Michael's ability on the microphone, and I knew he knew a good promo from a bad one. And... Uh, I vividly remember, like it was yesterday, Michael Hay said, "Man, that kid, that last one was hot." So I knew right there I was right. It felt better to me, and I knew right there I was right. But I went around the rest of the room, and every single person in that room said the same thing that Michael Hay said, including Jim Ross said, "Yeah, you know, that last one was a lot better. It was compelling. It was emotional. It kept my interest." So now Vince McMahon comes walking back, and he's got his glasses on the end of his nose, and he's got a cup of coffee, leans against the table. And he I said, well, Vince, what'd you think? And he, again, you know, back to the, how many, I'm curious how many times them and the, the, the personnel in the WWE or WWF when I was there pondered the secrets of the universe because that's what it looked like Vince was doing. And he gave a long pregnant pause and he finally stopped and he looked around the room at everybody and he said, well, I appreciate what you were trying to do, but again, a long pregnant pause. And he said, but I think I like my way better. What's everybody else think? Every person in that room that five minutes before had told me that they thought the second one was much better all said, voiced up, yeah, Vince, we agree with you. That's what we told told him when you were gone, Vince. And it was at that moment that I knew it was time to get the hell out of WWF because it's not about what I can come up with or what you can come up with in your head and what we think is going to be good. When you've got a person that's been in the business for quite a long time at that point, 20-plus years or close, uh, and you're just going to completely dispel that and say, no, 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 forget everything you know, go this route instead. Uh, and a wrestling problem is a place we're not, like Bill Watts used to say, we're not curing cancer and splicing the atom. We're, we're getting, you know, this is pretty basic stuff. And as a heel, you understand what's going to draw heat from the crowd. It was that moment with clarity that I remember my first trip to Stanford, Connecticut for on camera work. I knew it was time to get the hell out of there. And uh, it it was really uh, a clarifying moment for me because I, I thought, you know, it's one thing to surround yourself with yes, men. It's another to just fly in the face of everything that everybody knows is wrong, just to agree with the boss. And. You know, it, it, it's taken longer than I thought, but I think with what we're seeing right now with the the hemorrhaging of ratings by the WWE and the hemorrhaging of uh, live attendance at the venues in the WWE and now the pending deal to move over for the large part to move mo- a lot of business over to India, uh, which is why you saw the Punjab prison match this past Sunday and uh, the return of the great Kali. Uh, I, I think that speaks volumes as to what how they view the American marketplace. And I don't think it's a good place for them to be.
1: Almost. You know, I can see where the girls are going to go crazy over the Shane Douglas, the little bleach blonde hair, he's got the little shiny teeth. Get off the ropes! Once Douglas again. nails Haku another right another. in the chest with both knees and just drove him to the mat. Come on, come on, come on. And... Got a count of two. Now he's got him in the corner. Now, why in the referee counting now? Look, he's got him by the back of the hair of the head. Look at that. The referee's not saying a word. Jimmy Hadd, I don't think Shane Douglas is worrying about the little girls in the audience right now. I think he better be worrying more about Haku. I'm telling you right now, this guy's in a lot of trouble. Off the second rope. Flying body tackle. Down goes Haku. And tremendous action Everybody always talks
0: about Haku, I'm sure you know, you've, had, you've been around him a lot if, if you can, throw out, give us a, some kind of crazy instance around Haku where uh, you might have seen him go off the rails, because these are some things that, I, we actually did get a Haku question for you, but while we have you, and we're talking the Samoans, we're talking the crazy uh, nature of anybody trying to pick a fight with them, give us a Haku story if you can
2: Well, like, you know, just to underscore what you just said you'd be better off fighting, picking a fight with the U.S. Army than with Haku or the Samoan family, uh but Haku, I'll, I'll say up front, he's a sweetheart. I love him to death. He's such a great guy, an incredible performer in the ring, incredibly strong. Uh, you know, when I was a kid in 1990, when I went up there, and I was working with him almost every night, and my God, he, did he put me over strong! You know, and I've always, I've always appreciated that from him. But at that same time in 1990, we went to a trip in East uh, to St. Louis, we had a show in St. Louis. And afterwards, all the boys were going across to East St. Louis, which is right near Ferguson, where all that happened a few years ago. And uh, we're in a bar packed wall-to-wall people. Uh, me, Big Boss, Man, and Perfect. Mr. Perfect drove over together. And uh, long story short, this guy kept coming over to get a chair that, said that Haku was saving for his friends. And, you know, the first couple times, it was sort of cordial. Third or fourth time, the guy said, yeah, yeah, he cut him off like, for Haku saying, yeah, yeah. I know you're saving you're saving it for your friend, but I haven't seen any fucking buddy sitting here. And he went to try to pull the chair away. Haku jumped up out of the chair and grabbed him up under his chin. I always thought that was like a work move. <laughs> and he grabbed him up under the chin, and this guy like like his arms and like his, like went tight like he was faster. And eyeballs big as a house. And all of a sudden, chairs started flying and. Uh, bouncer started coming out of the woodwork, perfect, got hit in the head with a flying chair or table and got busted open, so I I had this visual in my head of seeing Kurt in the middle of the floor with this crimson hair, you know, and big boss man, Ray Trader, who, sweet guy, sorry he's gone, uh, You know, one of the biggest guys with a little boy voice, a little boy voice, he grabs me and pushes me against the wall and goes, hey, let's get out of here. (laughs) So we're (laughs) sliding down along the wall and I'm watching this like a movie, Chairs and bodies and everything flying in front of us. We finally get outside and there's like 10 cop cars pouring. The bar's emptying out. The cops all pour in their 20, 25 cops. And it sounded like there's still a riot going on inside. And, you know, everybody's outside. Well, a few minutes later, they come out. They're massive cops. All you see is badges in blue. And there's two on each of Haku's arms, two on his legs. One's got him by the hair. And he's still fighting with them. They put him on his knees in front of the bar. And like the captain or the sergeant or whoever the boss was with the cops came walking up. And he pulled out a Haku's on his knees in front of him being held like spread eagle. This guy pulls out his baton and flicks it open. Pulls it from back behind his ass. And smacks Haku right upside the face with it. And you know, I'm thinking, man, he to knocked him out. Haku sold it like his head snapped over to the right. And he looked back and, like, a bull just breathed out and went crazy. (laughs) And the cops all pulled the mace out. And they, like, ten cops sprayed, like emptied their cans of mace right into his face. And if you go back to 1990, you'll see there's a period, like, 90 into 91 when Haku has a great big purple jelly bean on his face. That's what it's from. Uh, That was from that night there. So when I saw that, I thought, if he wants to break you in half in the ring, he can, (laughs) so do whatever he wants. (laughs) But, sweetest guy in the world. I mean, he's just a really, really gentle soul, uh, except when you get him mad.
0: (laughs) Oh, my God. That's unbelievable. And that's what I love about hearing these stories with Haku. The legends are true. I mean, this is not like, oh, over time, it was like a Paul Bunyan-style thing. Like, every story you hear about Haku, they all tie into each other, one after the other.
2: Yeah, and if anything, far far from embellishing, we're probably not doing it justice. I'm sure I'm missing a lot of points, but... Yeah, they all those guys. You know, just over the course, we got. I'll tell you a ton of stories over the course of the podcast. But yeah, these guys were great guys. But uh, from my understanding, was if they started drinking whiskey, it was best to get away from them because if they look at you for some reason and just get the wrong thought, you're liable to end up dead. So, (laughs) but Haku and I have been dear friends for for thirty years. I I really love them.
0: And and it's funny too because then like our tie-in with Haku, John's talked to Haku a couple of times you know, about either doing uh, the two-man power trip show or about some of the other events that we work. And, John, I I know this is an easy question for me to ask you because I I know our conversations, but it took a couple of phone calls, but by the time you felt like you and Haku were, uh, you guys were like old buddies.
4: Yeah, I was was surprised because, obviously, like Shane just said, that awesome story where, you know, he's fighting off guys or he's like a caged animal at times where he can be crazy or, you know, he's using that spike, but... Uh he's what a nice guy. So friendly, so you know, like uh open and honest and just kinda like shooting the shit with him. It, it was really cool. It was it was almost surprising though, you know, given his reputation. They were like, Oh my god, like you can't believe on the other end of the phone it's Haku. Yeah. Now
2: you know, and that doesn't surprise me in the least, John, and I I will say this just in the, just in the uh uh in the doctrine of fairness, uh for every time I saw Haku do that the the, the four or five times over the long history of half of them a thousand times more i've seen him be the sweetheart guy you know the you know very you know fun to hang out with all that uh but you know the guys like all the guys they, they have to get them you know when you're on the road 330 40 50 days a year you have to blow off steam and you know uh when you some people do it by going to the room and sleeping and others go and do it drinking and what happens afterwards, I don't want to imply in any way that Haku's like, you know, not a good person. I mean, he's, a, he's a fantastic human being. Uh, just, you know, all of us, I'm sure somebody could tell you a lot of other, you know, stories that make make all of us sound bad. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I never thought in my head of Haku being a bad person because I always thought of him as just being a badass. That was somebody to respect and uh, just a really gentle, sweet soul underneath that.
5: Well, recently I just found out that an action of my past has a serious consequence. <sighs> because it changed my life. And I was afraid to change because I thought it would hurt my family. But I'm happy to say that my family is 100% supportive of this. And I'm also happy to say that the WWE, my employer, is supportive of this announcement as I hope you are too. When I was in college at Clarion University, I dated a young lady, and it wasn't until recent I found out that she gave birth nine months after our last date. Now if you indulge me for a minute, I'd like to brag about this young man. In high school, he was a three-sport athlete, an all-star, and he was a great student. He was even drafted after high school to play professional baseball, but he chose to go to college to get a degree and to excel in wrestling, and he did it both. Now, I'm happy he did that. So I'd like to introduce to you the newest member of Raw, my son, Jason Jordan.
1: Corey, you've known about this all along, haven't you? I've known Jason since our days in NXT, and we've become very
3: good friends. Jason's been confiding in me, and I appreciate his friendship.
1: I'm happy for both Jason and Kurt, and I'm glad I could be helpful to them in some way.
6: The one
2: thing I don't think wrestling needs any more of right now is more fake, stupid shit. Uh, and that's no reflection on Jordan or or, or Kurt. Uh, it's it's on the storyline, you know, where the fans I think want are ready to sink their teeth into more believability and more uh, realism, as opposed to, you know, Shane Douglas is and uh, his father was an alien, you know, from from Sirius <laughs> or something. I mean, come on! I mean, how, you've got to keep it in some semblance of believability. We've always talked about the the, uh, the ability for the fan to suspend disbelief. And, you know, uh, when you look at that storyline, again, in this day and age with Ancestry.com and all these, you know, a hundred times a day, I see, you know, signs, you know, type in the guy's last name here and you'll be astounded at what information you get uh, uh, or what offers you get pitched, I should say. Um, but, you know, it's it, to me. It, you, you've got to walk a fine line there. You know, there, there, there's. I learned from Paul Hammond a long time ago that there's a there are certain storylines that that you can do and and you know push the envelope a bit on, but then there's others that that if you try to do, you know, at some point the, 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 that damn thing called a pesky family call us professional. I used to call those, you know, call a fact those damn pesky facts. You know, sooner or later, those damn pesky facts are going to keep popping up, and people are going to realize, I'm sure Jordan's family members at some point are going to be you're not related to Kurt Angle. That's all bullshit. And, you know, I'm sure Kurt Angle's family is going to be doing the same thing to people on the street and where that they meet. And so, again, why do it? You know, if, if you're going to put something out there that just has cartoon fake bullshit written all over it, uh And, you know, why put it out there? You know, it's, this isn't 1965 where, you know, the, the, the television and the rabbit ears that we got our TV programs on, uh, you know, we were sort of betrothed into what information we got. Now, you know, I watch my sons and, you know, I ask them a question and I see their thumbs going a million miles a second and they already got the answer 13, <laughs> seconds 13 seconds later. You know, so... uh I don't know. I just think maybe Vince is believing the it's sports entertainment and everybody knows it's fake and all that routine. But again, I you know go back to what I've said a million times before. Uh, Halloween was the scariest movie I saw as a kid. But if John Carpenter would come up with that forty foot screen before Halloween started, saying, "Hi, I'm John Carpenter, the writer and director of Halloween. Thank you for coming. Uh, I want you to know that nobody was killed in this movie. Uh, all the blood you see is just Cairo." Uh, colored with red food dye, and eat your popcorn, enjoy the movie. That would have turned Halloween into a comedy had he done that. You know, So, yeah, we all knew sitting there in the back of my head watching Halloween, I knew nobody was dying. I knew nobody was really getting stabbed or thrown off a balcony. But just being allowed to suspend disbelief enough to watch the movie, eat my popcorn, and get into it, it unnerved me to no end. It freaked me out for a while. It was a crazy movie when it came out uh, back in the '70s. But you know, so I don't know if Vince honestly believes that the suspension of disbelief is not important, uh, or that you can just write it in. So what's next? Are we going to get you know, you know, Kurt Angle or or Hunter or somebody is allergic to Kryptonite? I mean, it's, it's soon late. I mean, it's got to go somewhere, right? We've got to keep pushing the envelope further and further, so sooner or later, it's going to no, I know the one, Brock Lesnar. Brock Lesnar's got to be allergic to, 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 to something, But salt. He's going to be allergic to salt, or some kind of basic carbon. That's a better one. He's allergic to carbon, so Kurt Angle, or, or, or Brock Lesnar, rather, has to be surrounded in this bubble. See you know what I'm saying? I mean, you can only go so far before you get to a point of being fucking absurd. And, to me, this storyline is pushing up to that level of being fucking absurd. you got a, an American Olympic hero, be, you know, being rendered in a storyline that, to me, you know, tinges on uh, racist, uh, uh, I, I don't know. It just seems to me to be a very, very strange storyline that everybody on the planet that's ever watched is going to know is bullshit. And so, because of that, I don't know why you would go there with it. I, I know the reason in the back of my head that I believe, because Vince is sitting back and going, ha, 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 that's funny as hell. You know? And meanwhile, <laughs> the, the fans ain't buying it. And we wonder well, why be. Raw is below two and sinking like a stone.
1: Gilbert has just said, young rookie, Shane Douglas, son of the referee, Edward retired. The crowd's coming to their feet. And what here comes the this? singer. The singer is here. And he just closed line hot I don't up. believe this. He just closed on hot stuff, Eddie Gilbert.
5: I don't believe this.
1: You're cheating. The referee's cheating. Yeah. Oh, yeah, new TV champion. We've got a new world television champion. I this. not this. Where's the commissioner? Well, Steve said he was going You're to crazy Gilbert is beside himself the crowd is on their feet this is emotion they cheated they cheated it's not fair it's not fair the biggest moment in this young kid's athletic
2: career you know first of all with with Bill you know Bill you have to understand Bill Watts is he's an intimidating guy he's a big guy by stature uh six three or so uh, back then, well over 300 pounds, uh, you know, big, raw bone cowboy, you know, <laughs> you know, cowboy Bill Watts. But he was what you would consider, what any of us would consider by watching movies, a cowboy. And, uh, you know, very intimidating. Plus, he's the boss. You know, so for a young guy like me in the dressing room, uh, you know, and Bill Watts, you know, this is larger than life, literally and figuratively, figure. Standing in front of me, uh, that's my boss, and you know, big as a house. Uh, he was very intimidating. And my first night after that match with Eddie Gilbert, when I came back from the ring through the curtain, uh, I was floated. You know, just it was my first night in this. Uh, you know, working on television for a real company, and this that that had my career ended that night that was a million times more than anything I ever planned on in my career. And Bill Watts was standing, the dressing room door was about 10, 15 feet into the right. Bill Watts was standing 10 or 15 feet ahead, straight ahead to the curtain. As I walked through, I'm taking, I'm looking at my wrists, I'm taking my tape off, and I look up and I see a Bill standing, and he's got his hands on his hips and sort of slung to one side. And... You know, as I'm walking towards the dressing room door, I give him, like, a heads up, like, what's up? And I went to walk past him, and I took one step towards the door, past him, and he said, what the fuck was that? And I stopped dead in my tracks, and I, you know, in my brain, I'm thinking, like, what do I say, what do I say? And uh, I quickly settled in my head that it's my first night, he's ribbing me, he's pouring a joke on me. So I looked at him, and I smiled, I was going to say, nice rib. Uh, You know, rib being a practical joke in professional wrestling parlance. And I didn't get a syllable out. As soon as the grin cracked on my face, like a grizzly bear, he came at me and slammed me into the wall. And his face, his nose is about two or three inches from my nose. He's yelling at the top of the lungs and he's spitting in my face as he's poking me in the chest with his sausage fingers. And uh, I hated it. Talk about intimidating, but he wasn't, and I got it immediately. He wasn't yelling, you piece of shit, you fucked up out there, you suck. He was yelling, don't turn your fucking back to the camera. If the goddamn camera doesn't see you, the people at home don't see you. He was yelling very specific instructions at me, and as much as I hated it, I knew what he was telling me, and that I better not make this mistake again. And, uh, you know, so I worked very hard to to not make those same mistakes. Bill was a uh, very intimidating figure. And at the time, uh, it was ubiquitous in the dressing room. Everybody hated his style. Everybody hated the bully that he was. But I've heard myself a thousand times in interviews and in dressing room conversations with young wrestlers. And with fans at, at the merchandise tables and at, at conventions, you know, Bill Watts, Bill Watts, Bill Watts. Bill. Every story somehow jettisons back to Bill Watts. Uh, I learned my craft. I started learning my craft from Bill Watts, and you know, I, I, I credit him with teaching me those things. As he did, as much as I hated it at the time, uh, that he, he cared enough. Uh, now looking back, that he cared enough in this Young, snot nosed kid from Pittsburgh to even point any of those things out to him. Uh, but Bill really had a command of the wrestling business. And like Jimmy asked, "Was I still around?" And uh, was I ra- around in the WWF when he was working? Yes, I was. Uh, and you know, a couple, i can going on, go on about great stories about Bill from that time. But uh, there was one taping, I believe, it was in Lansing, Michigan, where. We heels left all the baby faces laying in the ring. Uh, I picked Shawn Michaels up and vertical suplexed them down uh, front, front face forward on the on the stairs. And uh, uh, Razor Ramon was left laying. Kevin Nash was left laying. And the heels walked out. You know, we, we just beat the hell out of it. You know, Bill Watts is a big heel guy. He believes in having heat on the heels and draw money from there. And earlier that day, as he has a soul in the room talking about this and laying this idea out to us, uh, you know, we were, we're all in there listening. And Shawn Michaels walked in about 10 or 15 minutes late. And he walked in and walked right to the front of the room like where Bill was and took a chair and turned the chair around backwards and sat down in the chair. And he's smacking sue in his gum. And Bill looks at him, and I, again, I know Bill from way back. You know, Bill looks at him like, how dare you walk into my meeting this late, but didn't say anything. So he starts to talk and say, okay, so tonight we're going to install Son's smacking that gum. You know, Bill tried it three or four times to, to talk, and he kept looking back at Son. He finally reached over, walked over. They haven't said a word, just walked right over to Sean, stuck his finger in Son's mouth. Pulled the gum out, put it on the back of the chair, and went back in the front of the room and finished the story. You know, so tonight the baby <laughs> faces are going to get laid out by Bills. And you know, it was just no big deal. And to me, I, I totally got it. I knew Bill. You know, I knew Bill wouldn't tolerate that. And uh, I think Sean was a bit taken back by the fact that somebody would actually put him in his place. <laughs> it was uh, a beautiful day in WCW. so a great question from Jimmy and. Uh, Yeah, I was there to see it and and enjoyed every second of it.
0: (laughs) Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.